0: This is the Scott Thompson Show Podcast. Let's start off with, uh, it looks like we have identified and charged the guy that was uh, responsible for throwing the beer uh, at the... uh the wild card game, the Toronto Blue Jays, Baltimore Orioles. A Hamilton man who allegedly threw the beer can uh, was uh, walked into the police station last night, and of course, charges were filed. Which uh, you know, a lot of people are saying, well, it's not this person, it's that person, and uh, you know, they're going through all this grainy video and da 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 da. And we saw the picture that the police uh, presented. And uh, if you think they have that one and, and not another one, I don't know because I'm thinking that pretty much every seat in the Rogers Center has a camera fixed on it in some form. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Ross McLean is with us, crime specialist, security expert, Ross McLean Security. Uh, to find out, uh, RossMcLeanSecurity.com to find out more, and of course uh, check out for his uh, Facebook page as well. Ross is with us now. Hello, Ross. How you doing today?
1: I'm doing pretty good, Scott, and I think your instincts are pretty good about uh, the cameras at at the dome.
0: Well, you know this place has been around for a long time, and uh, I, you know, as far as I know, way back when they could always pretty much eyeball any seat in the in the stadium. Is that the case, Ross? Through some security camera or another, is pretty much every seat within view of a camera?
1: Yeah, well, the, 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 the dome there, that I call it the Sky Dome still. I guess it's the Rogers Dome, or what we call it. But, yeah, post-2001, of course, uh, there was a lot of security upgrades that were made to it. And post-2001, there was a continuous emphasis on doing security upgrades as things change, and certainly technology has gotten so much better. And my understanding is there are hundreds of cameras that cover, you know, virtually every square inch except for the bathrooms uh, of the center, And the cameras are used for a variety of things. They're obviously used to protect in cases of terrorism. They're used to uh, protect uh, the Dome against being sued for someone who says, I slipped and I fell here. Mm -hmm. They're used to settle problems about somebody who may say, well, security hit me first or something like that. And so it's almost essential. I mean, that's really what the Dome's job is, is looking after crowds of people. And the best way to do that is with the cameras. So my, my sense is, tell me. And uh, I understand that there are several camera angles uh, of this incident, not just the the few pictures we've seen put out.
0: Uh, So, in answer to my question, there would be a view of every seat, would there not?
1: Well, I don't know about every seat, but pretty much every seat, certainly every section and things like that. But plus, let me tell you something else that goes on with these games here. Uh, You remember the the pictures that are being put out now, I think, were one that were taken by a professional photographer who was down there, and that's the one that was used to put out uh, the face, I believe. But, you know, I talked to one of the photographers. You remember the great photo of the Bautista uh, bat flip, Scott? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, that, that was taken by Stan Behal, one of the great award-winning photographers at the Toronto Sun. And I talked to him about that, and he said uh, he was the only guy who captured the whole picture with the bat in the picture. And I said, why is that? He says, well, you're down there. You know what's going on in the game. You want to frame the picture up on what you think is going to be the story. You can either follow the ball out of the stadium, the out the face. He said, I wanted to get the whole picture. Mm. And so he took his picture, he had it, and that's what's going on for every play at a, at a ball game like that. You've got hundreds of professional photographers with, with these uh, high-resolution cameras for video and stills who are following all these plays. So there's all kinds of pictures that are going to have been taken down there.
0: So why would the police not release the shot of him uh, that they say that they have of him throwing the the can of beer?
1: Well, I think that comes down to the the discovery part of this, uh, now that it's going to be going to trial for looking at it. I think that's what the play is. And I want to point something out here. You know, I don't think the police, and I don't think this alleged beer tosser, he's still presumed innocent until Mm -hmm. he gets his time in court, but I don't think the police wanted to make this into this heyday that it was. You know. Scott, I will almost guarantee you that there was probably three, four, five or more people who were grabbed by the police by the scruff of the neck and taken out of the dome that night yeah. for doing something. We don't know their names. We don't know their faces. We don't know that they got a trespass to trespass the property charge. We don't know anything. But what happened here was I think the judgment by the person who's involved in this was very poor. I mean, they tried to do a cover-up and not own up to their problem, and it has blown up into this really big story.
0: Yeah, because they did offer him the chance, or whoever it was, to come in and turn themselves in before they actually released the picture.
1: Absolutely. And in fact, I put out on my Twitter account early in the morning when I saw that, I said, my advice to the beer tosser is, number one, lock down all your social media. Number two, get yourself a good lawyer. Number three, start working on your uh, your apology letter with no excuses. Hmm. Number four, find some place where you'd like to do community service that's meaningful. And number five, when you go in to see the police, try and ask for it not to be taken criminal uh, or get a, try and get a publication ban on your name so your face doesn't go everywhere. And, of course, what's happened, I think the decisions in this case along the way have, have helped to blow this thing up.
0: Uh, what would the charges be? I mean, uh, at this point, it's mischief. Could they Could they escalate beyond that?
1: Yeah, well, mischief is there, which is bad enough in that it's a criminal charge, and that can be uh, done up either as a summary conviction offense or indictable. It could also be upgraded, but I'm glad the police didn't do this. I heard some people talking about it. There is mischief endangering life, which carries up to a life sentence for it. I'm glad Mm -hmm. the police didn't do that. I don't think life was endangered here. They didn't want to make any more of a circus than it is. You know, But this guy has probably had what is going to be one of the most expensive beers ever in the history of the Dome.
0: Boy, isn't that accurate. Uh, What about Major League Baseball? Will they go after him?
1: Well, Major League Baseball is always concerned about security, uh, what happens at the leagues, uh, things around the players. Uh, They're always concerned about that. You know, and that's another issue when it comes to the camera footage. I'm sure that uh, the police had access to not only the Rogers video, the professional video that was turned in, but probably the, you know, the 4K broadcast video. We're all seeing stuff that's been you know, taken off of the TV, uploaded to YouTube, low resolution, you don't get to see it that well. So I'm sure that the police have access to that as well.
0: What about witnesses in this scenario? I mean, we saw the shot that they released and basically he's standing there with, you know, looking down <laughs> as if he was a kid caught with his hand in the cookie jar and everyone was turning around and facing the guy. I mean, obviously all of those witnesses would be uh, questioned as well. Surprise, surprised we haven't heard more of their perspective.
1: You know, Scott, I don't think you need to bother calling me to come on the show anymore. You can just talk about things (laughs) that are are going on, because let me tell you something. That's exactly what I believe. I I certainly believe that some of those people, after this was come out and it came out and the picture was put out and they saw the person wasn't coming forward, I I would very strongly bet that there are eyewitnesses who are going to also testify uh, as to what they saw and who did it. I'm almost assured of that.
0: Uh, can you see at the end of the day, uh, whether it's witnesses, whether it's video, that there's any doubt, whether it's this person or someone else, that this person will be caught? And there is footage, there is testimony of somebody saying, yeah, it was that person that did it.
1: Yeah, well, I'll I tell you what's going to happen there. This is what I believe is going to happen. I'm sure that once the person realized, uh, and this is where it gets to be an expensive beer, that they need to be, have a lawyer to deal with this because there's a criminal charge they're facing, I'm sure one of the first things the lawyer said was, that's great, give me a retainer for $10,000. You know, so that's already up there for dealing with that. Um, You know, and as it goes forward, what's going to happen now is he's he's been charged. He's going to be, his first appearance is coming up next month. Uh, If the police do what's called discovery before then, where they have to turn over their case and their evidence uh, to the lawyer and to the defendant so they can look and see what the case is, and they see that there is absolutely a rock-solid, irrefutable case to deal with, you know, you're very likely to see the lawyer tell him, look, you know, guilty plea, throw yourself on the mercy of the court is the way to go here. Unless he thinks somehow he's got some sort of legal technicality, that can argue the way out of it, in which case he's going to have to increase the retainer by probably another $15,000. Wow.
0: Uh, Yes, that is an expensive beer. Uh, What about Rogers Center? What are their responsibilities here? Are we going to see things change as far as uh, distribution of beer, that sort of thing?
1: Well, certainly, let's face it, it costs a lot of money to run that baseball team, and they make a lot of money, uh, I mean, I take it, uh, selling beer at, yeah. at those events. I mean, I just heard a report out that talked about how the bars in the area are all up 24% for their, yeah. for their sales of alcohol, so no doubt it was up, you know, that much as well. So I, I'm sure that they want to continue to sell. Uh, I'm sure, though, they're going to have to talk with Major League Baseball about whether or not they're going to do the reasonable thing here. Uh, perhaps they'll want to ban cans or some such thing, which do you, would be unfortunate. Do you, see,
0: do you see that coming, Ross? That they will. I remember a while ago, or when it first it all first started uh, there. That well, uh, remember when they first started selling beer in these stadiums? That was a huge deal. And again, all in plastic cups. And it took a while before it got to the to you know they're actually handing out the tall boy, not in not something in a poured uh, plastic cup. Do you think we're heading back to
1: that? Well, we'll have to weigh that decision uh, down there. I mean, it's unfortunate. This is one person out of some 50-odd thousand people that decided to lose impulse control and do something that they're, you know, they're going to regret now for the rest of their life uh, for doing it. So we'll, we'll have to wait and see in that. I hope it doesn't come to that. I mean, people need to enjoy their beers. I mean, you're paying enough for it. Sit there and enjoy the game. You know, just understand that the right thing to do is, is the right thing and not do stuff like this. And you know, had this guy turned around and done the right thing at the time when the police came down to investigate, put his hand up and said it was me, this would all be done.
0: Do you think people would be looked at it differently if, this, uh, if that would have happened?
1: Absolutely, because what happened was it, it turned into a social media phenomenon. The right. videos are out there. I mean, we saw the same thing with the Boston Marathon bombing. There was lots of video that was put up. Uh, I think it was Reddit led the way that board for yeah, doing it, yeah. and at one point, I mean they did get to the point where they did identify uh, the two suspects in there, but at one point they identified a guy who had nothing to do with it, a university student who was getting death threats and people following him, and all kinds of problems so I mean that's what helps to turn the heat up on this by not owning up to it right away.
0: Well, it was funny because if you look at the picture uh, that they put out initially of everybody turning around looking at him, there's one guy off to the left of the shot and he's putting his hands up going like, hey man, it's not me. (laughs) Don't look at me. I didn't do it. So I guess everybody in that frame, theoretically, at one point is a suspect.
1: Yeah, pretty much. But you notice the thing, and I've talked to you about this before in close protection work, uh, what people are looking at when you look at a crowd. As a, as a security guy, and everybody's there, and you've got your celebrity there. You're looking to see what's wrong, what's incongruent in the faces of the people there. Yeah, and yeah. when you look at that picture, that montage there, I mean, it could be a Norman Rockwell painting for "I'm feeling guilty" <laughs> yeah. or "Don't look at me." Right? I mean, his oh face my. and his reaction to it is yeah. entirely different than yeah. virtually everybody else's in the frame. I shouldn't laugh. Yes, you're,
0: you're exactly it. And and uh, and you know, it, it's it's funny when you think about it that it's. You know, we all make stupid mistakes, some more stupid than others. But that being said, a lot of it, too, is how you react to it. And, and again, like, gee, like, you're going to make a beeline out of there and no one's going to find you. In today's day and age, that just isn't reality, is it?
1: You know what, Scott? Completely. I mean, what, this, what the, the opportunity there was to do, and maybe there's still an opportunity to turn this around, is you have to make your character bigger than the stupid mistake that you made. And yeah. as you said, we've all done stupid things throughout our lives. You know, just as stupid, maybe not as been blown up as that. But what happens when it's stupid and you're there with the spilled milk on you and everything else, the thing to do is to own up. Own up and say, you know what, I did it, it's stupid, I'm totally sorry, I'll do whatever it takes to fix this. You know, and have this guy who went down to the police station uh, before his picture came out with his lawyer and said, look, I'm stupid. It was a foolish mistake. I own up to it unreservedly. You know, I'd like to be able to, to deal with this as a trespass to property and a ban from there. And you know what? I'm going to go out do community service. I'm going to go raise money for kids uh, baseball, or I'll speak at schools about how to take responsibility and proper sportsmanship. You know, then his character would have been the what would, would we'd be talking about today, not the hiding from the issue. Even though this, once again, this guy is still the alleged guy at this point.
0: Well, wow, you know what, though, Ross, we sort of live in a world where if you say what you're going to say loud enough, whether it's right and wrong, right or wrong, you know, people tend to believe it. I guess, and in this, and in this case, I guess he was waiting to see if there was proof, and if there was no proof, I guess deny, 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 right?
1: Yeah, there's very few people that can get away with that. I could make a political joke about the Clintons at this point, but I'll, but I'll but I'll save on that. You know, <laughs> but the issue is, you know, once again, if you're going to deny, deny, you you better make sure that you're denying the right thing. Um, you know, because the problem here is don't forget, you know, where this guy worked, his company had actually put up a reward for the guy, you know, to come find it. So, you know, he's, it's, it's almost the equivalent of doing something really idiotic and criminal at your company Christmas party. When everybody sees you do it, you know, you really have to, when, when you take total ownership of, of those sort of things. And it's the best chance you have of recovering because at least people will say, well, he took ownership and he was accountable and he's paid his price.
0: You know, and with the price of their charging for beer down there, I, you know, really, does anybody... I don't even like dropping it, let alone throwing anything. My goodness. I'm surprised there wasn't people down on the field uh, trying to collect what was down there, the price that they charged. Uh, where, do you see this as changing any great rules at the Skydome? Will it be business as usual as the series comes back? Do you think we'll see drastic changes when the series does come back?
1: You won't see drastic changes. It'll, it'll The difference will be around whether, I, I guess or not, there's cans there or those sort of things. You know, they may make a, an announcement or two on the PA system or something to people. But, I mean, most people know that this is not the thing you do. And, you know, this, this guy who's alleged to have done this, he he is very well liked within the sports community. He's yeah. played on baseball teams. Uh, he's got people raising money now trying to sell T-shirts that says free pegs on it for $10 to raise money for his legal defense. So, mm. you know, I got a feeling the guy is probably a lot better than this if yeah. he's the guy that did it. Yeah. But uh, that's all the more reason why he should have stood up right away and said, you know, this is a mistake, bad impulse control, uh, stupid mistake, no excuse. Uh, let me try and make this as good as I can.
0: Ross McLean has been with us, crime specialist, security expert, com, and don't forget to check out his Facebook page. Ross, as always, thanks for the time. Have a great weekend.
1: Have a great long weekend, everybody. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show,
0: weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Sunday, just in time to spoil your Thanksgiving dinner, uh, the second presidential debate is happening, this time with Anderson Cooper from uh, CNN and Martha Radatz from ABC. Uh, They will both be moderators, sort of a town hall style debate. What can we expect? Michael Diamond is with us, principal of Upstream Strategy Group in Toronto. He is a conservative political pundit, and he is with us now. Hello, Michael. How are you today? I'm um, great, thanks. Are you getting excited for the weekend?
2: You know, it's gonna be so good because of all the Thanksgiving celebrations across Canada, <laughs> we're gonna have families fighting about crooked Hillary and Lion Donald anyway. So turn on the debate and you can see them fight amongst themselves too.
0: Oh man, there'll be like there'll be there'll be pieces of turkey flying around the T V room, that's for sure. Are you expecting the same sorts of number the same sort of numbers for the second debate as we did for the first debate?
2: Uh, in, in terms of viewership, yes. yes, I think this is going to be, I think, in fact, Donald Trump's poor performance, I think, is probably going to get a lot of people even more excited about watching this, because we have to be on the edge of our seat to see, is Donald Trump going to be Donald, or is he going to listen to the quote-unquote smart people who have told him to follow what's on the teleprompter and the notes in front of him? So there's a great chance that we're going to see uh, Mr. Trump unhinge.
0: All right. Trump said he didn't want it to get personal during the first debate. He said he's not going to let that happen and try to stick more to policy this time as long as she does, whatever that means. Do you think that's what we'll see here? What will we see, do you think?
2: Oh, it's, it's going to be uh, personal. It's going to be an awkward uh, format for both of them, because remember, this is the town hall debate, which is something that first happened in 1992, where the candidates are, uh, they're not at a podium, they're not debating each other, they're, they're taking questions from, from real people. And uh, you got to remember that Donald Trump was very famous for a long time because of his aversion to real people and wouldn't shake hands with them. So he's not going to be really at home there. Hillary Clinton, who Barack Obama once called, quote, likable enough, also not really someone who can connect with your average Joe. So this is going to be an interesting format to really watch them uh, in not just what they say, but how they interact with the folks.
0: Should there even be an audience at these debates? I mean, you know, we heard it, especially during the first one, the moderator said, hey, we want everybody to behave. And, and obviously that didn't happen all the time. Should there even be audiences participation in any of these
2: you know, I'm of two minds on that because one, it's I don't really care what normal people have to say, but then on the other foot, <laughs> hand, this is all about normal people, and we shouldn't care what you know people like you and I who talk about politics for for fun and sport care. So, yeah. so I really do think this is the time to have an audience there, but I, I would agree that in most cases, uh, you know, one is just a standard debate. There shouldn't be an audience because they they clap. It, it's not the Arsenio Hall show. It should be yeah. more serious than that.
0: So we talked about him changing his approach. But do people want that? Do people want to see that serious presidential Trump? Uh, Will that, uh, you know, know, I guess the advantage to that is it will help the fence sitters. But on the other hand, the people that that enjoy Donald just shooting from the hip sort of thing, uh, are they going to buy into this?
2: Yeah, the the folks who are never going to vote for Donald Trump, but maybe are, are not appalled by this, but amused by it, probably want to see him be Donald, uh, Donald unplugged and just be ridiculous at the debate. Then there is that bunch, and these would be your typical Republican voters, the people who voted for McCain and Bush and Romney and Dole, who aren't quite there on Trump yet. They want to see him serious. And then for the folks who Donald Trump, as he said during the primary, he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and still get their votes. It won't matter what what he says, what he does, how much he lies. They're never going to not vote for him. So he should be serious enough to try and get those votes in the middle. The the audience, I think, for large, part, for by and large, is going to be hoping that uh, they're going to see crazy Donald because that's going to be great TV. Yeah, I
0: got to admit that. Uh, so what's the Donald's biggest challenge as he heads into this debate?
2: He needs to actually just. His challenge is one. How does he talk to? people? Regular people. He's done, uh, I watched a military town hall he did a few weeks ago with uh, some veterans, and it's just so awkward watching him. And not that Hillary Clinton's better, but, you know, no, and neither of them will ever be Bill Clinton, for example, who was the master at this. But Donald Trump is just not that good at it. He's used to talking at, not talking with people. Yeah. So it will be interesting to see how he actually, how sincere he looks. He's going to, He's going to have a sincerity problem, I think, not nearly as bad as hers, necessarily, but that's going to be a very delicate balance, and it's hard to take people's concerns seriously if you're insulting your opponent, so it will be a tough balancing act for you,
0: him. You bring up uh, Bill Clinton, and he certainly was a master at, at, at all of this. Why can't Bill teach Hillary this? Why, you know, they're in the same household, for goodness sakes. Why can't, why can't this rub off? Why can't he tutor her in this?
2: Well, you know, Donald Trump would question how much they're actually in the same household, but
1: uh, most <laughs> people will
2: believe that they are in the same household, and their marriage is, is real, because we have no reason to believe Donald Trump on this. Uh, I don't think this is something you can teach. I yeah. think Bill Clinton, uh, you know, you, there's stories of, uh, you know, he lost an election for student body president in university, and after that realized that the trick to winning elections is not talking, it's listening, mm. and uh, he was, at, there's a story he was asked uh, by a fellow student why he was so good at talking to girls and getting dates and he said well have you ever tried to listen to someone and uh it's it's a lot easier to tell someone to be a good listener it's not so easy to actually listen
0: hi so uh what about the hosts of the debate we've heard some chatter that uh there's some competition between the two hosts because they've got an abc host and a cnn host that they're bickering over what their role is going to be have you heard anything about that
2: well, it will be interesting because usually, you know, there is a one one moderator debate. This is a bit of a different format. Uh, and then again, yeah, it's strange to have them from different networks because, uh, of course, this will be broadcast on all networks that choose to and online, but when they wake up the next morning they're not collaborators, they're competitors. So we're gonna see a competition for votes and a competition for uh who can get the uh the after uh you know, is is ABC gonna win with Martha Raditz or is uh, CNN gonna win with Anderson Cooper. I think Anderson Cooper is certainly a much more uh bigger household name. Uh Martha Raditz uh moderated the vice presidential debate last time and was a bit criticized for agreeing to do that because apparently she attended the wedding of uh, Michelle and Barack Obama. So there was questions about her uh, impartiality. Donald Trump, of course, has uh, questioned Anderson Cooper's ability on that front as well. So uh, no one's ever going to be happy.
0: Will he be screaming that the questions and the moderators were two left after this debate is over, do you think?
2: If he doesn't do well, absolutely, because uh, we've never seen Donald Trump uh, have a substandard performance without it being someone else's fault or a microphone's fault.
0: Good point. Uh, Obviously, Pence had a good performance in the VP debate. Does this give him uh, any sort of momentum at all? Can he learn from that debate?
2: Well we, and we talked about this the other day and I think uh, Pence did a very, very good job and he was certainly in between a rock and a hard place and uh, found the right balance there. Uh, he practiced a lot and was very prepared for that debate. Donald Trump was not prepared for his first debate, so the, the ideal situation for their ticket would be the Trump looks but looks at uh Pence's uh performances as you know, hard work pays off, I'm gonna go and prepare. I don't think we're gonna see that. So there was a good lesson for Donald Trump to learn there. I don't think
0: it's going to have happened uh so do you think this he is practicing do you think somebody's putting him through the paces could
2: Could you imagine doing debate prep for Donald Trump because I think one a lot of folks are scared of him, including those in his inner circle uh, you don't want he, he, there's uh, so many stories that he's actually mad at Pence for doing well because its staged him, so could you yeah. imagine being the person there playing hillary clinton and uh, and putting the screws to him uh, and giving him the hard questions so it it's, It would be tough to one do an effective debate prep with Donald Trump, but again, if you look at the primaries where he did well in spite of it, all the smart people said that he was not going to do well there was none of his speeches were ever written for him. None of his speeches were ever prepared. It was Donald Trump just going out and doing improv for an hour, and I think he thinks that is the key to his success. I think in a year from now... someone was to sit down and ask, why did you not do well in the first debate? I don't think Donald Trump would say it was the microphone. And I don't think he would say it was because he was underprepared. I think he'll probably at that point say he was overprepared.
0: At this point, though, how can he not be preparing? How can he not be listening to the people who are around him who are saying, look what happened the first time? You've got to be prepared. I mean, he must be right, Michael.
2: It's a tough one to prepare for, and I guess there's different types of preparation. You know, The town hall he did with veterans last, I think it was Monday or Tuesday, would certainly be the right type of preparation for yeah. this for a guy like Donald Trump. Uh, interacting with voters is a good preparation for this. So it, the town hall format provides an opportunity to have a lighter style of preparation, and that's what he can benefit from.
1: Hmm. Uh,
0: so can he win going toe-to-toe on policy with Hillary?
2: Um no, because he doesn't have policies, uh, but he can, go, he can win
0: if he <laughs> Now, able. wait a sec, Michael. We'll get lots of people to say he's got lots of policy. Oh, Listen to what Pence said. And
2: he's done... going to make America great again. Exactly. That's a great policy, but uh, <laughs> you know. Uh, so I know he's going to build a wall and apparently make a foreign government pay for it. He's going to make America great again, which sounds wonderful, and I fully support, and if you don't support it, it's strange to me because it's a great slogan, but uh, policy is not where he's going to be able to win this if he can... If he can hit Hillary, if he can remind people that uh, there is this trustworthy uh, issues with her, that she's overexposed. And if he can build the case that the problems of Washington are not the fault of the Democrats, and not the fault of the Republicans, it's the fault of everyone, the whole, the whole establishment there, and he, he's the alternative, then he can win this election.
0: All right. Uh, do you think that Trump is going to go for the gutter and he, he's going to bring up Bill's dirty laundry?
2: Well, you know, I, I hope so, because it will be great TV. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I, I grew up in a time where it's easy to dislike Bill Clinton because of the way he behaved and that he lied and yeah. brought his office, which is a very important office in the entire world, into such a dis, disrespect and a negative light. So I kind of want him to, but I don't know that it's good politics.
0: How will Hillary combat that, or does she? just she just have to sit there and shake her head?
2: I think she'd probably roll her eyes. I think, uh, I mean, you know, Hillary, in the eyes of many, is, you know, there's there's different stories on this. But if you look at the Lewinsky case, for example, it's easy to paint Hillary as a victim because not a lot of people know that she was involved in the bowling of Monica Lewinsky and referred to her as a narcissistic Looney Tune, which I think is a very inappropriate way to refer to a a 21-year-old victim of sexual advances from the president. But to a lot of people, Hillary is the victim in that case, uh, and uh, Donald Trump would probably look like a buffoon for bringing it up.
0: So uh, Hillary last time, whenever Donald sort of went off on a tangent, she kept her cool, she smiled, which just seemed to irritate him even more. Uh, she had the odd comeback when, when you know, he hung himself, so to speak, or shot himself in the foot. Uh, what does she have to do to this de- in this debate? How does she... How does she keep the momentum in her direction?
2: You know, doing that again, just, you know, it was like a water off a duck's back every time he, he was being ridiculous in that debate. She was she, as bad as Tim Kaine, her running mate, was with Mike Pence. That's how good Hillary was, and it's not yeah. an easy thing for me to say that Hillary Clinton did something well. But uh, she, she was really effective of that uh, at that, and I think uh, if she can do an even better job of just dismissing Trump, brushing it aside, rolling her eyes, laughing it off, and uh, if she can land a one-liner on it like, there you go again, in the style of Ronald Reagan, that will work out very well.
0: Will that be Trump's biggest challenge, is trying to gain credibility in front of her?
2: Yes, uh, he especially after the first debate performance, and uh, that he's now, some would say, being outshadowed by his running mate. He needs to present a credible argument, he needs to be presidential, and he also needs to try and get under her skin, and we know that's not going to be easy because she was very prepared for that in the last debate.
0: Uh, what about the rest of his family? Uh, we remember during the uh, the, the nomination uh, conventions and such that he was bringing his family on board quite a bit. Uh, I remember seeing one of his sons, uh, I believe it was after the vice, president, uh, vice, president, uh, vice presidential debate on CNN, uh, I guess, uh, doing an interview, and I'm thinking, wow, this guy is even more aggressive than his dad is, and I'm not sure if if that's a positive message to be sending. Uh, At what point do you bring the family in? Uh, Why the sons as opposed to the daughter?
2: Yeah, you know, if, if Donald Trump wants to have his family as surrogates, I think there's only one option for that, and that's Iv- Ivanka. Exactly. Because he seems to be really liking. she's also quite reasonable. Her conversations are reasonable. The commercial she did about uh, family rights and parental leave uh, is good. It's a strange, strange commercial for a Republican nominee, but again, you don't often get Republican nominees who live in New York City penthouses in Manhattan, so <laughs> it's, it's not a normal Republican nominee either, but this, that was a good commercial. Eric and Donald Jr., they are charter members of the alt-right, and I don't know if they've always been or if they've become it because of this campaign in theater, but whatever that, like that whatever that, uh, their personas have become, uh, it is not an appealing thing to watch.
0: <laughs> is it? That's very well put. Uh, on the other hand, is it wise to bring the family in? I mean, at the end of the day, it's nice that you've got the support system, but do you want them coming in to prop up a candidate because it's not one of those jobs for the family. It's an individual gig.
2: It can be a job for the family, I think. And when the, when the family's good at it, like Ivana, Ivanka Trump is, it's a, it's a good use of, uh, of the family. When, when you have Eric Trump on the other side, who's really off-putting, um, he, he's the guy in university who nobody liked, uh, keep him away. Bill Clinton's such a uh, conundrum for the Hillary campaign, though, because he is simultaneously the best. And the worst, because there's no—I mean, Barack Obama calls him his secretary of explaining stuff, uh, and he can be the best on the stump for a candidate. But if we look at 2008 and even recently in the last few weeks, Bill Clinton is becoming increasingly gaffe-prone. And there's folks out there who even say he doesn't want Hillary to win because his performances, which are so atypical, have been poor.
0: Hmm. How
2: do e- how
0: does each candidate use this forum to their advantage? As you mentioned, it's a town hall; it's a different setup. Um do you, we will will we still see a a split screen type of uh, a visual on on the screen? and and how do they use this form around the people and in, in close interaction with the people? how do they how do they use that to to their advantage?
2: so for the the first the first question there, uh, typically it is not a split screen that there's mm-hmm. I, you know bar stools or uh, something of the sort, right. and that the the camera angle will show the whole uh, stage at once. And In fact, there is a lot of walking and wandering around, and if you look back at some of the previous ones, there was a great time when George W. Bush was speaking directly to a member of the audience. I forget about what issue, and Al Gore just walked right into him and sort of invaded his personal space, trying to be intimidating, and Al Gore is taller than George W. Bush, and Bush just turned to him and said, hey, and waved, and uh, the audience laughed, and it really was uh, Gore was shot down and looked like uh, a bit of a buffoon, so there that 's going to be a very interesting to watch is how do they respect and interact with each other and their personal space uh, uh, We know from Hillary Clinton in two thousand when she ran for the United States Senate. She had her personal space invaded by Rick Lazio, who was a Republican challenger, and that's one of the reasons why uh, people really rallied to her at that point and why he lost that election. So Trump's going to have to be extra careful with how he interacts with Hillary. Uh, as far as interacting with the audience, that's the key here. And if you think back to some of the great performances and debates like this uh, nature, they started in 1992. The Clinton campaign, uh, when the uh, surrogates were, or the delegates uh, from the campaigns, to the uh, Commission on Presidential Debates were meeting, the Clinton campaign suggested thinking it was never going to be agreed to to do a town hall for some reason george herbert walker bush 's team agreed, which was disastrous because he was uh, like the rest of his family, good fellow, but uh, quite awkward with the average people. You had Bill Clinton, who just was masterful at uh, reframing people's questions and answering it and it was it was really a nice uh, interaction to watch you saw a governor of a state who cared and understood what people were talking about then you had the incumbent president who didn't know how to even respond to citizens so that's what we're going to be able to watch is how do they interact with voters and if you even donald uh, wouldn't shake hands in the '90s. So how is he going to react? Uh, interact <laughs> really? with regular folks.
0: What's the format for the third debate?
2: Then it goes back to your uh, typical debate podium, right? Screen, one moderator, regular questions.
0: I don't want to get ahead of myself, but man, uh, no pressure there on the third one, considering what the first two will be. Uh, the first two would have been. I mean, h- how do you even how do you even prepare for the third until you know how the, what direction this one's going? Oh, in? Exactly. My goodness. Uh, so you think you're going you're gonna to see just as much uh, uh, showmanship in this one as we did the last one, and you think that the numbers will be just as high from a viewership standpoint?
2: In, in fact, possibly higher. Uh, the Sunday should be beneficial. It's Columbus Day down, down there. And uh, I think there's a lot of people who are, are probably on the edge of their seat expecting Donald to be Donald.
0: Uh, do you think that maybe he'll knock it out of the park and Hillary will be the one that's floundering?
2: I think in the post-spin, that's very possible because, one, she is not natural with other people. Again, as I said, she is not her husband, so it's going to be a tough format for her, too. And expectations for him after that first performance, very, very, very low.
0: Hmm, Good point. Michael Diamond has been with us, principal of Upstream Strategy Group in Toronto, a conservative political pundit, talking about Sunday's U.S. presidential debate as Hillary and Donald take over the airwaves. Michael, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated.
2: Thank you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show,
0: weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Remember, it wasn't that long ago, a lot of chatter, a lot of talk, a lot of debate over Uh, assisted dying in this country. Dying with Dignity is calling on Canada's provincial and territorial governments to ensure residents of hospitals and hospices have fair access to medically assisted dying. So far about 200 people have used the service, uh, but but details in regards to who and how many are hard to come by. To talk more about all of this, Shanaz Gokul is with us, CEO of Dying with Dignity Canada, and she is with us now. Hello Shanaz, how are you today?
3: i'm well scott thank you
0: thanks for taking the time to join us we appreciate this uh to those who may know uh, not know uh, tell everybody what dying with dignity is all about
3: uh right so we're a national organization we've been working on the assisted dying file for over 34 years um, we promote education on advanced care planning patient rights but a big part of our work over the last 34 years was having legalized uh, assisted dying in this country so we're pleased um, that for those who are imminently dying and terminally ill, that they are able to be relieved of their suffering with the um, assistance of a, a health care provider.
0: Bring us up to date on this struggle. Tell us, tell everybody what their a patient is entitled to now and, and, and what, what the laws are in regard to this.
3: Right. So, I mean, the patient entitlement really started with the Supreme Court of Canada's decision, uh, in the Carter decision in February of 2015, and they described um, access to assisted dying as a charter right. A charter right, it's a human right. Um, but since uh, June the 17th, when the, the federal legislation was passed, but you know, even before that, Scott, when we had that four-month period where people uh, could go to their, a court in their province um, to apply for a court-authorized death until the legislation was ready, uh, we really saw number of issues that were going to uh, arise around how you can access those charter rights. so there's still some issues across the country with um, you know people being able to find uh, health care providers who are willing to help them Uh, there are issues around uh, institutions uh, that we um, we know that uh, providers of public health care should be responsible for providing exactly that but there are some uh, Hospitals and hospices, some are faith based, some are not, that are trying to opt out of providing what we think is a very essential service. And that's presenting a real problem for access. People are being moved around. We don't know in some of these places when they, you know, people ask questions. You know, you can only make an informed decision if you have the information uh, that they're, you know, that we're not sure that people are getting other questions answered, let alone um, being assisted uh, in providing someone to help them should they decide that they do want an assisted death. So there's a number of issues here around access, um, and as you mentioned when you first uh, started this segment, uh, the, the numbers. Uh, you know, we we don't have a really good sense of what's going on because that sort of 200, um, you know, people have had an assisted death. That's not really quite clear either because not all the provinces have have reported, and um, and it doesn't give us enough information to be able to assess how well or how not well the the current legislation is working.
0: We remember when this was in limbo and in between court proceedings and such that uh, a lot of people didn't know where we were at and, and 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 what the law was at that point. Has has there has clarity has there been clarity provided there and has the decision really moved the discussion forward?
3: You know, it- it has in some instances but once again it really depends on on where you live and um, you know the policies and protocols um, that were prepared in advance of june the seventeenth by whether it was health authorities provinces or particular institutions uh, and so, you know, the way I like to think about it is that every year, you know, that first week in December, there's a sort of mass panic that seems to sort of flood through the country. Have you done your Christmas shopping yet? Um, and here we are talking about assisted dying, and we knew as of June 6th that this was going to be something that was allowed with or without the legislation, um, and yet it seems that so many places still aren't ready. And so... There are some good examples of you know, some health authorities um, and places that are ready, but some that are still sort of trying to catch up. And then in terms of really understanding what's going on, the federal government is required in Bill C-14 in the legislation for assisted dying to, uh, to coordinate um, data tracking and reporting so we can fully understand. P- that really hasn't begun yet, and so we really don't know. We know it's happening. You <laughs> know, we know many of the physicians who are providing an assisted death, but we also know that there are a number of roadblocks, and we we don't know um, some key data uh, in terms of who's having assisted death. Uh, you know, the kinds of conditions, the number of people that are being denied, uh, the number of people that sort of follow through, the number of people that change their mind, the number of people that die before. They're able to access the assisted death. There's all sorts of information here that's really important uh, for us to assess. So I would say there's more clarity in that we know um, it's allowed and that there are providers, um, but there's still a a lot of um, grayness around what's actually going on.
0: Uh, How did you get the information regarding the 200?
3: Uh, That was reported in an article. Uh, There was a, a, a McLean's piece. Um, uh, where, you know, based on, um, you know, what BC has reported, Ontario, Alberta, Saskatchewan, that's kind of the number, but we don't really know what the full number is. Uh, And I think it's also important to know that while we want to be able to track and assess what's happening with assisted dying, We really want to know what's happening at end of life. So, you know, to really understand uh, where investments need to be made, um, what kinds of decisions that we need to make moving forward, we also want to look at the number of people that are having, you know, uh, palliative sedation, uh, sort of pain relief that that in some instances does lead uh, to a hastened death. We want to know the number of people. Who um, aren't able to access an assisted death but are opting instead for voluntary stopping eating and drinking, starving, and dehydrating themselves to death. And there are a few reported cases of that, but it's not being tracked. And so I think that there are a number of things that we need to do to coordinate uh, what is happening for all end of life care in order for us to make future decisions and to really assess. Um, how good things are working or are not working.
0: If you don't have that data, does that mean that people are not getting the services that they provided? Perhaps that's what they choose.
3: Uh, well no i think that you know the the data will, will be very helpful for instance so if somebody asks just because somebody asks a question or makes an inquiry into an assisted death doesn't mean they're going to follow through but it's it's, interest, it's it's helpful to know um you know how people are if they're asking for it if they're making a request and they filled out the the sort of the official form but then maybe they you know something has happened in the interim they changed their mind or they died before so you know and you're right this is all about choice um, but that information helps us understand what people are choosing at end of life in general.
0: Obviously, this is an incredibly hot topic, uh, Shanaz. Uh, do you think that they're keeping this under wraps, that it's one of those things that, um, you know, we'll deal with it because we have to. We're at this point with the Supreme Court and such, but we really don't want to talk about it too much.
3: Um, well, I think there are some people that really would like not to talk about it. But, no, I don't think it's a, it's a deliberate effort not to be collecting data. I just mm-hmm. think that um, it hasn't begun. It hasn't been coordinated. Um, now, I will also say that one of the things I find troubling is the number of um, institutions, many of, um, of which are faith-based, that are apparently opting out of providing an assisted death, but it's it's hard to see um, where the official policies are of some of those institutions, and and I think there needs to be much greater clarity. Um, you know, from our perspective, all publicly funded um, uh, healthcare provi- institutions, these are public providers of public healthcare, uh, should be providing this. But if you're going to opt out, we really need to see a policy to understand what's going on. And, and I, I question why we haven't seen a number of those yet because there are a number of people who are looking for them. And so there are, there are some people I think, that yes, they would like this to go away, but it's not going to go away. This is a reality in this country. We have to access, um, assess access issues because you can only have a charter right if you can access it. Otherwise, it's just a nice to do. And so we want to make sure that, you know, frail, vulnerable, dying people um, can access something because they need help. <laughs> you know they're not. some people aren't going to be able to you know raise their hand to lift a phone to lift a phone and to make a phone call to ask for an assisted death. Some people physically are not going to be able to do that or to you know look at a re- website to find out where they're supposed to go. We are talking about very ill. Um, very fragile, uh, dying people. So you know we need to make sure, as a country, that when we have um, uh, a healthcare treatment that is acceptable, that is legal, um, and that relieves uh, people who are suffering intolerably, that they are able to access it.
0: How clear has the government been on what the rules are to these institutions? Can you opt out? Have they got? Do they have that option? What are the options?
3: Well, this is just it. So, you know, the provision of health care really falls under the provinces and the territory. Mm-hmm. And there's not a lot of clarity. The only province that has a system... Um, is Alberta, and that is a, an arrangement that was made between Alberta Health Services and um, the Catholic faith-based providers of Health Covenant, where if you make a, re- you can't make a request or have an assessment um, at one of the faith-based um, institutions. You, they will arrange for patient navigators to take you off-site, where you can ask your questions, make the request, have the assessments, then you go back on-site to the faith-based institution and, until the time when you have an assisted death, where you go off-site. Well, that is a system, and we do commend Alberta for trying to come up with something. It's not uh, its not an appropriate system because, you know, there was a case in Vancouver a couple of weeks ago of a gentleman who had spinal stenosis, and his daughter said that just to touch him, he would scream. And he had to be transferred from a faith-based hospital to Vancouver General, and she said every bump along the way he was just screaming in pain. So moving people around is not an effective um, uh, way, uh, it's not an effective and an appropriate standard of care. It's a very low standard of care for people who are saying, "I just want to be able. I'm eligible. I want to be able to access uh, my charter right to an assisted death." And for um, these kinds of institutions to say, "You got to get out." But at least there's something in Alberta and the rest of the country. You know, all of the provinces and territories have very quietly so far, um, you know, not made a move to disc- You know, whether they're going to regulate or legislate. On this but it 's really important for you know Canadians and for your listeners to know that we have universal health care in this country It is it is a um, by for many people the one definition we might all be able to or many of us can agree upon that it 's a very important principle uh, for being Canadian um, and that these are public providers of public health care uh, and they receive public funds and so you know I think it 's really important um, when we are talking about people who are so ill uh that they should be able to get access wherever they are you're not going to necessarily choose you may not even know if your hospital you know or your institution when you first enter it uh, you're not going to know necessarily that you want to have an assisted death and you're you're not going to be able to choose in some places because that's the only place for you to go uh so we think that this is something that the provinces and the territories the governments have to step step up and show political and compassionate leadership
0: uh, the conflict between those who agree with this and those that disagree growing, or do you find that smoothing out a bit?
3: No, I think that those who disagree are always going to disagree and um and they are you know actively there's a you know there's a number of people in a multi faith group and others who oppose assisted dying. Um, uh, who, are, who are always, uh, they're the same, you know, people who ch- have opposed choice for decades in this yeah. country. Um, the real difference is is we are a small, tiny, <laughs> you know, we call ourselves national. We have six staff, um, and they have the backing um, of, of uh, certain religious uh, um, uh, organizations that uh, we just don't have those kind of funds. Yeah. And, and we think that this really is about compassion and it's about providing a high standard of care for the most vulnerable people who who want an assisted death
0: do you see this coming to a head before a solution is is finally ironed out in this have we have we have we covered most of the rough road
3: i i don't know that it is it has uh, been uh, the rough road has been covered i think it's it's ongoing um you know there is a challenge uh in ontario a coalition of christian dentists and doctors have launched a challenge against the human rights policy and the MAID policy um, for doctors in Ontario that if if they conscientiously object, they still have to um, refer their patient, um, and they have to be the ones to pick up the phone to try to find help for their for their patient. And, and that's going to be heard um, uh, in a, uh, likely a Toronto courtroom in, uh, in February. So, I mean, that's one step along the way that doesn't address the issue of institutions. And I think it's what's really important is that when you have, you know, doctors that are not willing to provide effective referrals, and then on top of that you have institutions. The uh, Catholic Healthcare Association of Ontario has said they won't provide effective referrals, nor will they have the discussions about assisted death if their patients ask, or or do referrals or do assessments, that this isn't just, you know, about conscientious objection. It moves from objection to obstruction because of the vulnerability and the precarious physical nature that most of the people who will ask for an assisted death will be in.
0: Now that we are where we are, is it possible to put this genie back in the bottle? I mean, is it just moving forward at this point?
3: You know, uh, it's a, it's, it's, this is part of an organic process, and I would say that, you know, I look at this issue, my background is in human rights, that this is a human rights issue, um, and it's, uh, it's organic, and there will be things that, you know, that will surface in the in the time ahead, the things that are surfacing now, uh, and I think it's, 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 we're not going back. The train has left the station on this, and rightfully um, and thankfully so for people who are suffering, um, but the train still has a way to go, and uh, there are other people that we hope, um, because we believe that the legislation the current federal legislation is unconstitutional um, and we would like to see that and it will be challenged in court um, because we believe that the legislation should have been about helping people who have severe chronic suffering and who have endurable and intolerable suffering. And really, the legislation is right now, as it stands, is just for people who are dying, who are imminently dying. And that is important. But we believe the Supreme Court's decision um, was uh, more inclusive than what this legislation is.
0: Shanaz Gokul has been with us, CEO of Dying with Dignity, and of course, an update on where this file is in our country. Shanaz, thanks very much for the time and insight. Much appreciated.
3: Thank you so much,
0: Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.